Hey, hello, and welcome to the Middle East Forum Speaker Webinar Series, Israel Insider with Ashley Perry. I'm Stacey Roman, and I will be moderating this discussion today. We are pleased to have Mr. Ashley Perry, advisor to the Middle East Forum's Israel office, join us here each Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern to update us on all the events going on in Israel. Mr. Perry will be giving us a briefing on current Israeli affairs for 15 minutes and open it up for questions. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen to type your question. And now, with no further ado, I'll turn the discussion over to Mr. Ashley Perry. Thank you very much, Stacey, and good evening from a very snowy uh, Israel. We're currently under a bit of a blizzard, something that we were promised uh, the last two weeks and finally it happened. Um, there's been a few power outages, so I hope that doesn't happen uh, during the next half an hour. So let's try and get through it. Um, obviously, there's lots to talk about with the elections, with what happened uh, with uh, an Israeli uh, uh, crossing over the line into Syria. We can talk about that. We can talk about many other issues. But I'd like to focus tonight a little bit on uh, something that we've touched on many times in the past, but is is, is extremely important for these upcoming elections, and that's uh, the issue of the ultra-Orthodox community in Israel, and specifically the parties that represent them. First of all, a little bit of uh, statistics. Around 12% of the Israeli population are what's called uh, ultra-Orthodox Haredim. Haredim is the Hebrew word uh, that is used by the community themselves for what's generally called ultra-Orthodox, black cats, you know, that, that sort of uh, uh, community which um, you know, there, there is in the diaspora in the US and the UK and elsewhere. Um, ever since the 80s, basically, uh, there was always ultra-Orthodox parties in the history of the state of Israel. Mostly, uh, they represented uh, in, 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 in Judaism, at least in Israel, uh, let's say to a certain extent, socially, there's two major groups. There's Ashkenazim and Sephardim. It's an oversimplification, but it's one that's uh, used in the state of Israel, Ashkenazim, uh, tend to mean Central to Eastern European Jewry, and Sephardim means anything from the, uh, the Mediterranean Basin, North Africa, Middle East, um, the Balkans, Turkey, etc. For many years, the only ultra-Orthodox party was the uh, Ashkenazi party, which is today known as uh, United Torah Judaism. Uh, and ever since the 80s, a new party was formed called Shas, uh, started after the very charismatic Rabbi Rab. Uh, Ovadia Yosef, who was the spiritual head uh, until his, uh, he passed away a few years ago. The difference between the two parties, um, I mean, there's many differences in their outlook and et cetera, but as far as where they get their political base from, the Ashkenazi uh, uh, Haredi party largely, in fact, almost solely gets its votes from Ashkenazi Haredim. Uh, there's two parts to it. There's the Hasidic and there's the Lithuanian the non-Hasidic branch, and they work together, sometimes uneasily, uh, because there are major uh, difference in worldview, outlook, which rabbis they listen to, et cetera, et cetera, but they know that they're stronger together. Uh, they polled for many years, anything from six to eight, um, because I said, they, they sometimes do try and reach out to other communities, but very minimally so, and with, uh, with a minimal amount of success. The other party, Shas, which were formed in the 80s, try to do something uh, far greater. They try to reach out beyond the ultra-Orthodox community, beyond the Haredi community, to what's known as the traditional public uh, or the modern Orthodox or national religious public. Uh, why they were more successful is a difference in the worldviews between the Ashkenazi and the Sephardi world, whereas the Ashkenazi world generally, regardless if you're secular or 
or whatever you are, you, you tend to remain in one solid box. To a certain extent, I'm oversimplifying, obviously, but there's very much a black and white world. You're either this, this, or this. In the Safadi world, it's far more blowing of lines, and you can find in one family someone who wears a black hat and other people who don't even wear a kippah. Uh, maybe they'll even go to the synagogue together, and then one with a black hat will go home and have a Friday night dinner and learn, whereas the person perhaps without a kippah uh, will go to a nightclub. Uh, it's not seen as strange uh, in that community. There's a great respect for uh, religion, for tradition. You'll, you'll find people, as I said, who you know, won't keep kosher, but will put on tefillin every day, or you know, well, it will be a sort of uh, you know, a combination of things. So Shas understood this community and understood the great potential of tapping into that community because over half of uh, all Israeli Jews are from the Sephardi community. And at the heyday, Shas, uh, I believe, I think the most they got was around 19 or 20 seats, which was a tremendous achievement under Arya Derry when he was really known as the kingmaker in Israeli politics. And as we saw, he crowned the left or the right, whichever side would give uh, his community the most benefits he would go with. The interesting thing about Shas is that during election time, they always try and appeal to this traditional voter, this uh, uh, national religious but then when it comes to actual policies, they almost solely uh, devoted to the Haredi community. Uh, as we saw today, Shas came out with a nice um, election video, again, targeting those traditional, not necessarily religious uh, voices by saying, you know, we are your party, you can trust us, you can rely on us. And to a certain extent, they, they, get, a certain, uh, they get a certain amount of success with that. Uh, they're usually the more powerful of the two parties. Interestingly, they're usually led by the other. Usually decisions are made by the Ashkenazi party and Shas follow on to a certain extent. Um, uh, but basically, the most important thing about these two parties today is they are the foundation of Prime Minister Netanyahu's election victories. And when we say election victories, we're not talking about in the actual election, let's say in the government forming. Uh, because as we discussed before, uh, prime ministers are not chosen on election day, governments are not formed on election day, they, uh, they're formed afterwards with all the horse trading, uh, uh, coalition building, government uh, structuring. And what happened was, is ever since he returned to power, Prime Minister Netanyahu in 2009, he's basically relied on the ultra-Orthodox parties, which will give him at least anything from 16 to 20 mandates, which are solidly in his camp. And there's this symbiotic relationship, whereas uh, the ultra-Orthodox give Prime Minister Netanyahu what he craves more than anything else, which is stability and a continuation of his power. And the other side of the coin is that Netanyahu basically gives the ultra-Orthodox everything they demand, whether it's continued uh, uh, you know, deferment from going to the army, because as we know, uh, Israelis are supposed to do army or national service, but ultra-Orthodox are allowed to defer it, basically, for their whole life. Uh, they get money for the yeshivot, their uh, institutions of Torah learning. Uh, they get many benefits that other Israelis don't get. They get um, uh, you know, better rates when it comes to education, when it comes to housing. Um, and for many years, these issues are basically sort of, you know, uh, uh, certainly not on the center of the Israeli agenda with security, economy, et cetera, et cetera. What we have seen in the last year since COVID uh, arose in Israel is a community which has basically flouted, again, this is an oversimplification, obviously there are communities 
which, uh, which did follow the rules, etc. But on the whole, it's seen as a community that flouted the rules. Some of the major rabbis in that community, which are listened to, um, basically decided to open up their schools and educational systems, their synagogues, uh, while the rest of the country was in lockdown. And at some point, there was a sort of a daily diet of pictures of weddings, of funerals, of thousands of people, of schools, bus being, uh, children being bussed in from all over the country, life continuing pretty much as normal. There were, there were some days when the rest of the country would be in almost some sort of lockdown or high restrictions, and you go to ultra-Orthodox Haredi areas, and you would see schools open, uh, synagogues open, shops open, the streets full, barely a mask to be seen, and it's created a lot of ill feeling. Uh, and probably for the first time in, in many years, at least I believe since 2013, the issue of the ultra-Orthodox compliance will be uh, part of the main agenda. In 2013, for those who remember, it was the only government in recent memory where the ultra-Orthodox uh, were not in the coalition because of a deal struck between Yale Lapid and Naftali Bennett, basically, to keep them out. So th the question is, is how much of an issue is that for Israelis? Well, according to a recent poll, two thirds of Israelis uh, believe that the ultra-Orthodox party should sit in the opposition. Now that's a potential problem for Prime Minister Netanyahu. His numbers haven't uh, seriously been affected by it. He tries to remain at a distance. He tries to make some of these deals uh, below the surface. There, there is a lot of uh, sort of um, anger about the fact that while the rest of the country are ordered to close schools, et cetera, et cetera, Prime Minister Netanyahu has to phone the grandson of the major Lithuanian uh, rabbi, rabbinical scholar, uh, Rav Chaim Kanievsky, and ask him permission to close his schools. And that was made fun of in one of the uh, most popular Israeli satirical shows. It was considered, <coughs> excuse me, very disrespectful from the ultra-Orthodox point of view. Uh, but it's something which really riles up uh, Israelis. And at least one, if not two parties are making this the centerpiece. Avigdor <coughs> uh, Lehman's uh, uh, Yisrael Beitena, which classes itself as a right-wing secularist party, has said that it will not sit in a coalition with the ultra-Orthodox parties. It's made that absolutely clear. And in previous elections, in fact, we went to the first or the second set of elections because uh, Liebman basically said, I will only sit in this government if there is an end to the mass deferment of yeshiva students from the ultra-Orthodox community. And then we started the second, the third, uh, now we're in the fourth elections. So it is an issue. Uh, my personal belief is that now we're out of a lockdown as, uh, as we were from Sunday and this Sunday, a lot's gonna be open up, whether it's schools, whether it's shops, restaurants, uh, uh, cultural sporting events that we won't see uh, such egregious, um, uh, you know, uh, aversion to the law, uh, to, uh, you know, and, and see these pictures because the rest of the country won't be uh, in lockdown. We do know that uh, as far as the vaccination rates in these communities, it's low. Uh, in the Arab community, it's also low. Uh, there has been a great movement to try and get as many vaccinated as possible. And uh, a lot of uh, Israelis sort of saw, uh, you know, and. Uh, the fact that they were giving away free cholent, which is a, a dish which is very much favored by that community if they would get vaccinations. Uh, but joking aside, what a lot of people are worried about is that there is now forming a state within the state. 
a, a, a state or at least a, a, a large and growing uh, community. What we've got to understand is it's growing faster than the rest of the country. So while it's 12% today, within a very short amount of time, it'd be 20, 25%. One in two children entering the first grade are Haredi, which means in, in you know, what is it, uh, in 12 years when they matriculate, when they finish school, most of them don't matriculate. They go straight to yeshiva, whereas um, the rest of the population will have to go to the army. Obviously, the Arabs don't, but the rest of the Jewish population. Uh, and, and it's a worry because the economic effects, the billions that are given to this community without really contributing to the uh, society, to the economy, to the defense, to security, uh, is going to be unsustainable. So it is an issue. Um, it's becoming more of an issue. The state within the state, you know, there's been so many programs about it, how they created their own health system, they created a welfare system. And it's largely funded either by private donors, but that's becoming less and less <clears throat> true with the economic downturn around the world. But there are uh, ways to find budgets for this community, even when the rest of the country doesn't have it. As we saw towards the end of last year, when the budget was not passed because of all these political machinations between Netanyahu and Gantz and, and all these different services around the country uh, that could find no funding, suddenly just before the, uh, the Knesset uh, uh, was dispersed, suddenly there was a, a budget um, pushed out of the back door at the last minute for hundreds of millions of shekels only for the Haredi community. So it's certainly uh, an issue. Uh, we'll have to see if that has longevity <coughs> towards the uh, elections. I spoke to a few politicians who pushed this issue and they're worried that, uh, that the attention span of the average Israeli voter will not be sustained uh, until the elections, and maybe this isn't an issue to run with, uh, but at the moment it's certainly captured a lot of Israelis' attention, um, and there will be certainly a, a, a larger amount of Israelis who will vote on this issue than in previous elections on March 23rd. And with that, I'm happy to answer any questions about this or anything else. Yeah, thank you so much. So. Um... Last week we talked about Bennett being a kingmaker. Is that still the case or has that changed? Very much so. And it's actually uh, captured a lot of attention. Uh, interestingly, just after over the last 48 hours, a lot of the, there's been a lot of infighting uh, between, uh, let's say these four parties that we talked about, which have uh, passed these uh, vote sharing deals. Yesha uh, Tid under Yela Pid, Yeshua Beteno under Vitor Liebman, you hope under Gidon Saar and Yamina under Naftali Bennett. These are four parties which, in theory, at least according to the polls, could form a government uh, after the elections with the help of perhaps Blue and White and the Labour Party. Um, but they're the, they're the four largest parties, likely to be the la four largest parties. And we've seen a lot of infighting. Uh, uh, Victor Lehman came out uh, with a letter to Naftali Bennett asking what exactly his policies are on religion and state. Uh, Gidon Saar has been sniping at Bennett and saying, you know, who are you going to go with after the elections? Uh, because Naftali Bennett is the only person who hasn't said that they'll go with or not with Netanyahu. He says, I will, I will go to the president's office when I'm asked and say, I recommend myself to be prime minister, which is a bit of a cop-out. Basically, he's leaving it open. He claims uh, in his election propaganda, at least, uh, election material, I should say, um, that uh, uh, you know, he, he wants to change this government. He, he says it's a failing government. 
but he has not committed not to sit under an Netanyahu government. So he is the wild card. He still remains the kingmaker as things have as things happen. And when polls are put out, he could go in either camp. Most polls say even with him, uh, Netanyahu doesn't have 61. Most of them fall very, very short, 58, 59 or 60. Um, but most um, polls say that, uh, you know, if you take out the, uh, the Likud and the ultra-Orthodox parties that we just talked about and the Arab parties, uh, there could be a 61 if Yamina Anton Naftali Bennett joins them. But that would be quite an interesting uh, collection of parties from the far left to the far right, um, with just sort of one agenda keeping them together to get uh, Netanyahu out of office. Perhaps they could argue also to steer the ship through, you know, the, the stormy waters with the coronavirus and the economy, et cetera, et cetera. But on security issues, religion and state, and some of the other, you know, usually hot button issues, they certainly don't agree on much. Uh, but it remains to be seen. As I've said before, it will all come down to the numbers. But at the moment, uh, Naftali Bennett is certainly a, a kingmaker. He did say today uh, that he feels if he has 15 or more seats, he could be a serious contender for prime minister himself. Uh, but at the moment, he's polling around 10. And they say he's dangerously close to slipping into single digits. Now, one of our viewers asked, is Bennett being perceived as a corrupt politician at this point? No. Uh, to the best of my knowledge, there's, there's never been any, any investigation or anything uh, involving Bennett. Okay. And would Naftali Bennett and his party have the power to draw much from the ultra-Orthodox parties? What, what do you mean? From the ultra-Orthodox population? Um, possibly with Shas. Sure. Um, uh, Naftali Bennett and Yamina have tried a lot of the time to reach out to the so-called, as I explained before, the Sephardi traditional national religious voters that, uh, that may go with Shas. May, there are quite a few in that community that will decide between uh, Yamina and Shas, maybe some other parties in the mix, certainly Likud is one of them. Um, but yeah, they, he, he's tried on many occasions, sometimes mostly, I would say, in the past, unsuccessfully. He's tried some things that backfired. He tried to bring in a famous uh, soccer player, uh, Elio Hanna, uh, to his list in the past, who's a very famous uh, Sephardi, traditional, uh, very well-known uh, soccer player, and that really backfired. And in the end, he actually dropped out before the elections. Uh, they've tried a few other things, but so far, um, they're not really successful in bringing uh, a large part of Shas's uh, voter base across to them. Do you expect any kind of ultra-Orthodox gatherings or demonstrations like the yeshiva demonstrations in 2014? I, I don't remember specifically any in 2014, but there's demonstrations almost every week. Uh, some are smaller, some are larger. Uh, usually uh, as I said, that there is this uh, mass deferment for uh, those studying yeshiva. And what happens is there are more extreme elements within the Haredi world who won't even uh, allow themselves or their students to go and get the deferment. So sometimes they are then guilty of not going to the army. It's very easy just to go to the office and get a deferment. But for some extremist groups within that community, that would be seen as some level of recognition of the state, which they don't recognize. 
So sometimes they don't even do that and then they'll get arrested and then there's massive demonstrations around Jerusalem. Uh, you know, they, they close the roads, et cetera, et cetera. And sometimes, you know, there's a lot of other communities which are not extreme, but see this as a, a, an affront to their way of life and the, the demonstrations get bigger and bigger. Um, so we're seeing them quite regularly. Um, whether we'll see the mass demonstrations that we've seen before, all depends on whether the army deferment, which is probably the biggest issue uh, outside of uh, Corona, you know, uh, uh, heeding to the Corona rules uh, for the public. As I said, you know, when, when the average Israeli has to, has to send their children uh, off to the army or national service and they see other communities who are just not pulling their weight, as you can imagine, they, there's a certain amount of uh, anger around that. Um, and so this issue comes up. In fact, uh, the, the, the deferment issue is not to, it was never to be seen as permanent. What happens is the government has to keep on uh, recycling it every few years. The High Court a number of years ago said that it was unconstitutional to allow a whole community not to serve where everyone else has to serve. Uh, and they keep on asking the government to come up with an alternative plan. Uh, so far, every single one has been struck down as unconstitutional. And basically, the government keeps on asking for more and more time uh, to come up with some alternative plan. Many committees have sat on this. Basically, Netanyahu's main goal is just to kick the can down the road. He doesn't need to deal with this. Uh, so the issue came up again. The, the extension uh, ran out of time. I believe it was even a few weeks ago. Uh, and the government asked uh, for the issue to be put off for a couple of months because of the elections. And the, the Supreme Court gave them that. Um, so it's certainly going to come up again because there's only a certain amount of times you can keep deferring the question. Um, so when that comes back, uh, they, I'm sure we're likely to see some very large demonstrations. Thank you. And a follow-up question to that. Has there been any workable and reasonable attempt to encourage the Haradi and the Arab communities to accept the need to go into the government civilian service? Well, um, there's been a lot of efforts. There were different committees. Shaket, there was the Shaket committee. There was many other committees. Um, so far, the, uh, the Haredi world on the whole doesn't want to compromise at all. They believe that any compromise affects their ability um, uh, to ensure that their children stay in yeshiva. Um, there was a law in, I think it was 2012, put forward by Israel Beitenu, Avigdor Lieberman's party, uh, when they were in the government, which basically said one very simple thing. Every single Israeli 18-year-old, Arab, ultra-Orthodox, regardless, everybody, has to do either the army or national service. A national service can mean working in soup kitchens, working with the elderly, working with youth, working with the, whatever it is, disabled. I mean, the... the the national religious community, the women uh, tend to go to national service where they work in hospitals and all these different places that I've just mentioned. So his, his, he wrote one simple law, all 18 year olds have to choose one or the other. And Arabs can go and, and do national service in the Arab communities, ultra Orthodox Haredim can do it in their own communities. We're not asking for you know, anyone to move to other communities. Uh, everything will be according to their lifestyle. Uh, and while there was behind the scenes a lot of support for it when it came to it pretty much every other party apart from all of the Israel Betani members which were 15 at the time uh, voted against the law uh, even though many of them had claimed to support it so it just shows that there is a big power in the ultra orthodox communities because the, the, the vast majority of 
other parties don't really care about the issues that the ultra-Orthodox do. And they know if they want to gain power, if they want to even potentially become prime minister or form a government, they know that you need the ultra-Orthodox because the ultra-Orthodox will give you pretty much a stable government uh, as long as you give them what they want on their issues. But there is a light being shone on what exactly this quid pro quo involves, and it involves billions of shekels, unfair treatment, unequal treatment, unconstitutional treatment. And it's now uh, coming to the fore. Uh, as I said, some parties are focusing on this, but you won't find uh, Netanyahu, Bennett, Saar uh, dealing with this because all three of them know if they, all three of them believe that they can be prime minister and all three of them know that they cannot afford to lose the possible support of the ultra-Orthodox community, so they will not uh, visibly and openly attack them. Thank you. Previously, you predicted that President Biden would be more supportive of Israel than Obama was. Given his State Department appointments, the fact that he has not yet called Netanyahu and other statements, do you still believe that will be the case? I still say, I, I still say he'll be more friendly than Obama. I don't say he'll be more friendly with a, a, than former President Trump. Uh, and and I, yeah, I, I, st I still believe that. I, st I you know, it, it's definitely, to my mind, a snub, uh, the fact that President Biden hasn't uh, phoned uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu. Uh, yesterday, the White House uh, press secretary said that, uh, you know, uh, President Biden in the coming days will get round to the Middle East and he'll be the first Middle East uh, leader he'll speak to. But, you know, Israel has never been just another country. Uh, Israel has always been seen as a, a firm and strong ally, and usually it's one of the first countries to get a call. But I think it, it's relatively unique because we have a prime minister who so openly uh, placed himself alongside uh, the previous administration and went against so openly uh, and explicitly against the former uh, administration under Obama, where President Biden was obviously vice president. So Vice President Biden is probably keeping this in mind. And probably it's more about Netanyahu than Israel, I believe. Um, and I'm sure we'll get around to it. There's, there's, it will happen in, in the coming days. Uh, Netanyahu himself, you know, uh, tries to play, play it down. But it, it, there's no doubt in my mind that it is a snub. And I think it's more personal rather than at the, uh, the level of the relationship. I think, you know, there's been a lot of contacts at, the, at many, many other levels. And I think the relationship remains strong. Uh, but I think at this point, it's more of a personal thing between Biden for what he saw under, when he was in the Obama administration. And then uh, the fact that, uh, you know, Netanyahu so openly advocated, you know, uh, president for President Trump and vice versa. So I think it's uh, more to do with uh, personal uh, issues rather than uh, any, uh, you know, sort of lowering of relations between the two countries. So on another note, it seems as if someone can cross from Israel to Syria, then the reverse would be possible. Uh, what does this say regarding the level of border security? Well, we, we don't really know enough. For, for the viewers who, who, who or listeners who, who, who don't know what we're talking about, it, it came out yesterday, suddenly, uh, we heard that the cabinet had to meet an emergency in person, not on Zoom, it's been happening a lot, uh, for a, an issue of national security considerations, a lot of debate about it, then it came out Russia was involved, they said it was a, a matter of humanitarian issues and there was all this conjecture whether uh, some of the uh, missing Israeli soldiers that are buried in Syria would be handed over just like uh, in, in uh, last year a major figure was uh, and it now turns out that a woman for a, a formerly ultra-orthodox uh, woman crossed into Syria 
there's, 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 there's reports whether she meant to go because she had a Syrian boyfriend. I've seen that report. There's others where she mistakenly passed over into the Syrian area. I mean, I, I, the few times that I've been up to that uh, part of the country, it's not that easy uh, to just sort of creep over the border. There, are, there is a massive army presence. We have a technologically tight uh, system, but mostly it's to watch people from coming from the other end. Again, I don't know how. Maybe in the coming days we'll find out. Uh, our top negotiators uh, flew to Moscow yesterday. They just returned. And it seems like Israel is going to have to release two uh, security prisoners um, uh, who who basically are under arrest because one was spying for Hezbollah and, and other security related uh, uh, activities. Uh, the big question at the moment is that Syria wants these prisoners to be in Syria and they want to remain on the Israeli side of the Golan. Uh, but according to reports, this should be settled in the coming days, but this is sort of out of the blue, this issue. Um, I don't think it's compromised um, the, 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 the border because there's been a lot of attempts to try and cross that border. And I know that there's a very heavy presence, um, but maybe we'll learn more details exactly how she managed to get across in the coming days. Thank you. And in the last minute here, we have a few viewers asking how the uh, trial against Netanyahu, Netanyahu is going. Well, there's no, nothing new. Uh, we're still waiting after that, uh, you know, last week we saw Netanyahu go into court and basically uh, uh, say what you know but he, he, he how he pleads and obviously pled not guilty um we're now waiting to see when the uh when the sort of trial itself will begin uh obviously Netanyahu's lawyers want it to be pushed off till after elections they say anything else would be interference in uh the election uh, themselves uh we haven't heard anymore but uh at the time it did seem like the judges were uh, pushing towards that Netanyahu's lawyers are always looking for some sort of bureaucratic or procedural element to try and push it off as much as possible. And there's been a lot of pressure, at least from the media side, uh, from his supporters, especially in the Likud, to say, to make the case again and again, that if, um, if this case is pushed forward before the elections, uh, then it'll be an interference. Uh, Netanyahu uh, himself made a very rare appearance on one of the major news channels this week. It was quite extraordinary, half an hour, one-on-one -on -one with the major news anchor. And he again expressed that his belief that the, the case against him is falling apart and there's nothing there. Um, so he's, he, he likes to claim he's confident, but the fact that the, uh, uh, the, the, the judiciary is moving forward with this shows that there, there will be a case, uh, but it remains to be seen whether it will happen before the elections. Um, but it does seem from the hints that the, the judges gave at the time that they may well just wait uh, the extra month or so until after the elections. All right. Well, thank you so much. We've come to the close of our webinar. Ashley, thank you again for taking time to update okay. us this week. And for our viewers, please join us Friday at 1 p.m. Eastern for a webinar with Abdullah Buzkart uh, discussing Turkey's overlooked campaign against critics. Thank you all for joining us and I hope you have a great day.